Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today we're going to be talking about prison workshops, the upcoming Team Serious Open, the pros and cons of sanctioned magic, a short tangent on casual magicking, and finally, our Serious Eats, this time with Thurman's and Sandwich Punch. We're here today with Vintage Jedi, Mean Deck Sith Slayer, and TMD Socialite, Tuan P. Ponertown himself, Anthony Michaels. You may know him better as Tuan007 on the Mana Drain. Hello, everybody. That's Tuan. He's a, uh, a special guest for us today. We're going to be talking about workshops, and Tuan has been playing them for a long time. Some would consider him a workshop expert, workshop master, even. So we thought we'd bring him in to get his opinions on everything. I think one of the things we wanted to start off with is workshops being suddenly a tier one deck. They're putting up big results here in the United States and Europe. People are starting to take notice. Blue players are scared. It's actually interesting because years and years and years of playing workshops, um, it's always been a tier two deck. It's always been a hate deck vying for that top spot. And finally, within the past like year and a half in the printing of Lodestone Golem, Workshops has moved to that Tier 1 status. And you see some blue mages over on the East Coast a little frustrated about losing their little pillar of superiority in the vintage world. I find that hilarious. And <laughs> You can even see some calls for restrictions on certain cards that I don't believe would be restriction-worthy. So you're talking about Lodestone Golem itself, and I've noticed at least one person has called for the restriction of Chalice of the Void? Yes. I've heard that Lodestone Golem, I've heard the argument that it's too powerful, that it's unfun. It's kind of like um, how Trinisphere was back in the day. Right. But Lodestone Golem hasn't been the, um, I guess, it's not as unfun as Trinisphere, because you still have many outs, and like the Blue Mages have adapted to right. combating Lodestone Golem. Like, take, um, uh... The Landstill decks. Uh-huh. The, I think that they have done, like, a perfect example of combating, like, Lodestone Gondo workshops. What are they doing? Uh, are you talking about, like, Lightning Bolts and stuff like that? Yeah, Lightning Bolts, Ingot Chewers, all those, like, one red casting cost solutions to workshops are starting to see, are starting to come to fruition in the United States. Back in the day, the European metagame, when, um, Painter Servant, Grindstone, and Turbo Tez, and all those decks were coming in, their sideboards always contained a basic mountain and four ingot chewers. And mm -hmm. that trend in combating workshops took forever to get over to the United States. Huh. I mean, it's, it's certainly not irrelevant, speaking about Lightning Bolt, that the Vintage Champs winner's deck list had two or three of them in its deck. Right. Well, that was, that was good for him because there were four workshop decks in that top eight. Yeah, I, I bet Lightning Bolt was really awesome for him. Well, Lightning Bolt doubles his removal for the Mirror with um, Dark Confidants, Snapcaster Mages... Other Jace the Mind Sculptors, it counts as removal for Lodestone Golem. Um, um, Forge Master? Not Forge. Nothing kill Forge Master is the big problem. Phyrexian Revoker, shutting down Jace's and Time Vaults and other things. Well, let's get back to workshops here. What's your thought when you're putting together a workshop deck? What's the what the theory you use to construct one? I believe every card in a workshop deck should like incrementally attack your opponent's deck. Uh -huh. Just over and over. The way I theorize and build workshop decks, it's not to like lock you out off the rip. It's okay. to incrementally gain card advantage through the cards I'm playing. 
So instead of a blue deck drawing cards, you're looking at something that makes your opponent's cards less useful. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And there's certain cards that um in workshop decks that don't do that. They work in like the opposite manner, like a okay. smokestack and crucible of worlds. Like smokestack really does nothing for two turns. Right. Like, you cast it past the turn, then it comes back. You ramp it up past the turn, and it does nothing. But over the course of three or four turns, that's where you gain that incremental advantage from the smokestack. Right. The same can be said for Crucible of Worlds. I hate seeing multiple Crucible of Worlds in my opening hand. Like, it's one of the worst things because, like, that card doesn't impact the board immediately unless you have Strip Mine. And uh-huh. the thing is, most of the blue decks nowadays are packing enough basics where Wasteland's not really as good as what it used to be. Uh-huh. Yeah, Wasteland doesn't seem as popular as it, it was. It's not. I mean, all the blue decks have gone through these years and years and years of evolution to combat Wasteland and remove artifacts. Yeah, well, looking at, like, one of the rug decks, that usually has, what, at least two or three basics main, right? That's got a couple of islands and a, uh, either a mountain or a forest main. Yeah, the vintage rug, I think, has some basic. Right. I mean, that's that's hard to get around with Wastelands. Like, they can pretty well defend their mana base. Yeah, but if you have, like, two thorns or two spears or a tangle wire, that completely negates rug's mana base. Right. Like, all their spells cost two or less outside of, like, Vidalcan Click. Uh-huh. With Tangle Wire and a Sphere, you could like slow them down and negate their plays long enough to gain that dominant board position with your Smokestack or right. your Lodestone Golem. So what's your, I mean, aside from Lodestone Golem, what would be the skeleton of most of the workshop decks that you would build, just talking card-wise? Well, I come very, I come from like a very like prison mindset and theory. Okay. So like I'm, I'm not a fan of the workshop aggro decks. I don't mm-hmm. think they have enough disruption to combat the big blue decks. I guess if I was building a workshop deck, it would immediately start with, like, four workshops, obviously. I would probably stay away from Goblin Welder, just because okay. the format's filled with Fire and Ice, Lightning Bolts, and Creature Removal. Well, right. It's a good good time to start to talking about Lodestone. I mean, you start with four Lodestone Golems. Well, yeah. Right? Obviously. Outside of playing two-card Monty, I think, right. yes. When you play workshops, you are automatically filtered into including Lodestone Golems. Okay, so we're up to four Mishra's Workshops and four Lodestone Golems. Do you include Sphere of Resistance? Yes. Now, I used to be an avid fan of having Thorn of Amethyst over Sphere of Resistance, but today's vintage world is just populated with creatures nowadays, so Thorn isn't really the threat it used to be. So you go with four four Spheres? Yes. Yes. And what about Tanglewire? Tanglewire is... I think Tanglewire is the absolute bee's knees right now. I think Tanglewire is amazing. It immediately impacts the board. Yeah. There are times when you play that and it's like getting three time locks. Absolutely. And I think the power of Tanglewire is better when it like fades down because we have the card um, Phyrexian Metamorph. And that also adds to the, the spheres as well. And other Lodestone Golems, if you could live the dream and have the Lodestone Golem, Phyrexian Metamorph, Phyrexian Metamorph hand. Do you play four Metamorphs? Would you play four Metamorphs in most of the shop decks you play? I've been testing four Metamorphs, but I think I'm going to cut it down to three because okay. there have been multiple times where I've had two plus metamorphs in my hand, and I have not been able to lay down a threat, and that gives my opponent a window or an opportunity to come back in the game, and it's been devastating and testing. Pretty pretty good answer to Tinker as well. It is a great answer to Tinker as like a stalemate, but it's not the best answer to Tinker. It's really awkward when your opponent right. puts down two metamorphs against your one Blightsteel Colossus, because that's more than an answer. I've had that happen. Right. Right. I have yet to live oh. that dream. <laughs> 
I've seen that dream lived. I've seen Mark Trogdon live that dream. Mark Trogdon lives all of the workshop dreams. He does. He does. He he is a workshop master. Um, so, so what about so the, what about uh, smokestack and crucible? I immediately have four smokestacks in every single workshop deck I play. Like that card really? for me, yes, it has done more things than any other card in a workshop deck. I actually prefer smokestack over lodestone golem, and I know I'm going to catch some flack for this. But well, you're, you're still my... playing four of each then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I always come from like that long-term grindy. I'm not trying to lock you out and kill you in two turns. I mean, ideally that would be the best, but my mindset is just like, I'm going to grind you out, we're going to play this long haul game, and I'm going to win this War of Attrition. And Smokestack fits perfectly with that role for me. Interesting. Smokestack and Crucible go hand in hand, right? You're playing, playing Crucibles as well? Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously the theory with those is that you can sack, for, or sack lands to Smokestack and then replay them with Crucible, so really you're not losing much while your yeah. opponent is growing farther and farther behind. Ideally, you just want to keep your stack at one, and then you can sack your land and replay it with the Crucible. Right. And over the long term of the game, you're not going to lose any card advantage or anything or land. Right. But your opponent, they're going to feel the squeeze. They're not going to be able to come out of that unless they answer the Smokestack immediately. And the right. cool thing is, though, is um, if they try and blow up your Crucible of Worlds, which I've seen happen many of times when I've been playing, your deck can just drop permanence left and right, and right. your average blue deck cannot. So, oh, like, sure, because they're playing, they're playing spells that aren't permanents. Yeah, exactly. And so sometimes, like, inexperienced blue pilots will fall into that trap. That's one of the most rewarding things when they do that, and then you're like, this game is mine. What is the one spell that you want to see when you are playing against a workshop deck? You know what I mean? Force of Will in my opening hand. No, that's him to Turok. That's bad. But if it counters your one lodestone golem... Yeah, you could be sunk after that. I'm going to say the cards that I want to see are going to be Tinker, Soul Ring, Soul Ring. Basic Island, and Herkel's Recall. I'm big. Yeah, Soul Ring is probably the best. Yeah, it, it's no, I, hard to deal with. I hate Soul Ring. Like, when I, I play workshops, and it's like Island, Soul Ring, Go, I've already lost that game. Yeah, because you, you have to play at least two spheres to catch up with that. Yeah. So that's why you play um, Mox, Workshop, Revoker, Sphere of Resistance? Or Mox Workshop Thorn Revoker. Workshop Mulligans were described to me as when you look at your opening hand, you basically need to think, like, is this good enough to win me the game? Do I have enough threats? I think that, like, when you look at a workshop hand, is you have to look at it, you have to look at your seven. And, like, that is correct. Like, are these seven enough to win me the game? Because workshops don't have that ability to manipulate the library or draw extra cards like big blue decks and other vintage decks. What you have in your opening hand is what you have. And you have to play those perfectly in order for you to gain the incremental card advantage against your opponent. That's where you could find like the really good workshop pilots versus the really bad workshop pilots. Well, I wouldn't say bad workshop pilots. I would just say inexperienced workshop pilots. It's the difference between watching like uh, the Farinos versus some guy who just net decked a workshop deck. That would be me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those guys play not to like super lock your opponent out immediately. They play for the long game, like the game of attrition. And that's what a workshop deck is. It is a game of attrition. Like you're grinding your opponent out. It's not just a quick combo and like go to the next game. You have to play the long game nowadays. Right. So speaking of the opening hand, let's talk a little bit about Trinisphere. 
you're of the opinion that Trinisphere is no longer necessary in workshop builds. I'm going to catch a lot of flack for this, but <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really am. Trinisphere, it's really awesome as a four of. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, it is amazing if you can have four and you can apply pressure. But as a one of, it doesn't stack with all your spheres. Suppose, like, your opening hand is a workshop, sphere, sphere, like, whatever. And then the third card you draw is Trinisphere. That's a dead card. It doesn't yep. stack. It doesn't add. It doesn't give you any incremental advantage in the matchup, like a sphere would, or like a chalice, or something else. Yeah, I, you know, I have to say that I'm actually on board with this. I haven't played Trinisphere in my Workshop Prism decks for a long time, simply because after turn four, you're really not doing much with it. You have it on turn one; it's awesome. Right, but it doesn't show up enough in your opening hand to matter. Right, right. Which I find interesting because um, BC, Blaine Christian, he ran one at Worlds, and I just w I wish I could talk to him and figure out what his thought was on Trinisphere, like how many times he saw that in his opener, or how many times he saw that like on turn four and top decked it and then cast it, because he wasn't running any other spheres either outside of like Lodestone Golem. For me to cut Trinisphere, I'd have to be playing all of the other spheres, oh, yeah. or a good number of them anyway. And, I, you know, his deck, yeah, his deck didn't have the other spheres, so I feel like he was right in playing the Trinisphere. I don't know whether it's right or wrong to play the one Trinisphere. Like, right. I don't know how many times he saw it during Vintage World. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah so I, I think he only has to run, like, what, three smokestacks, too? Uh, yeah, he did have three smokestacks. I really don't know, like, what his thought process was on that, or whether it was good or not, or whether, like, I'm in the right or wrong. I cut Trinisphere ages ago, and I've never looked back. Just You've never because, missed it? No, not, not at all. Do you have a threshold level of spheres that you want to play before you cut Trinisphere? You start with four lodestones, do you also have to play four spheres, and then you cut Trinisphere, or do you play lodestone and four spheres and two thorns and then cut Trinisphere, or anything like that? I think that all depends on what you want your workshop deck to do. Okay. Like, if you're running Null Rod, you could cut down your spheres. If you're running welders, or like if you're splashing for like multiple colors, you can cut down on your spheres. But I think if you're playing mud, you should run as many spheres as you can pick into your deck. Except for Trinisphere. Yes. It doesn't stink. I mean, it really does not stink. If you have a hand and like you open it up and it's workshop, mox, sphere, sphere, like that's good. And like you play that game out, your second card you draw is Trinisphere, you gain no advantage from that. Because right. your opponent's already, like, Trinisphere, technically, by the two spheres. Because right. they're already paying extra for all of their spells, including ones that already cost three. Yeah, yeah. Now, if Trinisphere stacked, oh my god, that would be bonkers. Workshop decks would be retarded. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at the top eight decks from Vintage Championships. There were four workshop decks in top eight. Only one was playing all 13 spheres. Greg Krager was playing four Lodestone Golem, four Sphere of Resistance, four Thorn of Amethyst, and one Trinisphere. Everyone else had cut at least one other Sphere. No one else had cut or no one had cut Trinisphere. Maybe Trinisphere is like a sacred cow. Blue decks will never cut Black Lotus, but like, what if your deck doesn't need Black Lotus? That's different. Other decks don't You would never cut Black Lotus. Because it's insane. I know I would never cut Black Lotus. It's the best card in Magic. Trinisphere is still just a tool. It's not, I mean, blue decks cut Wheel of Fortune and Time Twister, but... Well, those, are, those aren't, like, blue decks. Those are, like, TPS decks. I mean, well, that's sure. a whole different animal. You see what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying that I you, do don't always, you don't always play all of your restricted options when you're playing building a deck. No, you're right. A perfect example is um 
with cutting a black lotus. I think Nick Detweiler, like a, a TMD, cut black lotus for an espresso sax list. Well, didn't didn't uh, Roman used to cut it so it wouldn't get welded out? Roman used to cut, from what I remember in talking to him, he used to cut black lotus in the workshop mirror. It's because okay. of, like they had welder. If you get first turn, like black lotus something go, and they had welder on their mm-hmm. first turn, yeah. you were kind of boned. Right. But that was also in an age where we didn't have Lodestone Gollum, we didn't right. have Firxian Metamorph, and we didn't have Firxian Revoker. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at an Espresso Stacks list. John Jones, third place, vintage prelims at Gen Con. No Black Lotus. You know, that's at Gen Con. It might be because he didn't have one. Uh, no. He's, it, got, he's got workshops. Well, yeah. But. No, Detweiler, it was proxied at Waterbury, and he didn't have Black Lotus. Yeah, that's, he got, like, yeah. I think six. Man, this is getting pretty interesting. We can, we can cut a whole bunch of cards from workshop lists. There you go. <laughs> Dude, I cut Mana Vault and like ages ago. I haven't played Mana Vault in a long time either. I guess I play it in my um, Forge Master list. Mana Vault and the Forge Master list, I yeah. think, would be well, They're totally different. That's why I'm not talking about Forge Masters. Well, Twan, you play uh, Ancient Tomb? Yes. I mean, yeah, you're going you're gonna to take a lot of damage from that, locking the game up. Yeah. Something that makes sense not to have Mana Vault. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. But I think the thing is, like, you. another thing about not running Mana Vault is, um, I find myself chalicing for one more than I chalice for zero. Chalice for one, real good. Yeah. And for some reason, whenever I chalice for one, that's like a pseudo, like, Visions tutor. So it just sucks either my Soul Ring or Mana Vault straight to the top. That'll be my next two, like, within the next two cards after I chalice for one. But you never cut Soul Ring. No, no. Soul Ring's <laughs> probably one of the best cards in Magic. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it's even more retarded than EDH. <laughs> Please don't ever bring up EDH again. <laughs> I don't mean to, but like I don't understand the format. Soul Ring and EDH. That card should be banned. <laughs> Absolutely. Same with Mana Crypt. We are not no. talking about EDH right, in this all right, podcast. All right. all right. I will not talk about EDH and Soul Rings you, and Mana Crypt. Do you play uh, Mitra's Factory? Yes. Yeah. That How many is do my. Play? Um, do you play a full playset? I've been playing a full playset. That's sort of an interesting question. There are a lot of lands that can be put into that last slot. I feel like whenever I build a workshop deck, there's always a four-of slot that can be pretty much any colored or colorless land. Obviously, things like Ghost Quarter and Mistress Factory and now Buried Ruin, Rishadam Port. Cavern of Souls? Yeah, Cavern of Souls is a new one. Makes your Lodestone Golems uncounterable. Which uh, is really annoying. Yeah, do you have any any opinions on those? I think most of those are like metagame dependent. Sure. Like, if you're going to go into a field of blue decks, Rishadin Port is probably, like, your best call, or um, Misha's Factory, because your metagame's going to be chock full of Jaces. Okay. But um, I've never really, like, been a fan of Cavern of Souls, just because there's only, like... There's only a few cards that benefit from it. Yeah. And right. the problem that I have with Cavern of Souls is, like, I'm sacrificing that acceleration or disruption to cast an artifact creature, my Lodestone Golem, most likely... Right. And only to meet, like, a Steel Sabotage or a Hercules Recall or a Lightning Bolt. Right. So I found that um, in, like, testing and everything that, like, the fact that your things are uncounterable isn't really that beneficial because the blue decks have answers to everything that... Right. Another reason would be that you don't need to make things uncounterable because you make all of their counter spells cost more to the point where they can't play them. Yeah. Uh, what about metagaming? Like, what's what are the best cards in workshops right now? 
Um, I guess that depends what you want to metagame against. Well, okay, let's break it down into, into different things. Let's talk about, if you're planning on playing against two Rug Delver decks at the next tournament, what do you want to have in your deck, and between your deck and your sideboard? Worm Coil Engine. Worm Coil Engine. Nice. That card is a nightmare for aggro decks. An absolute nightmare. So, do you just play those and then rely on the rest of your spheres, the rest of your deck, to do the job? Yeah. Because when they get rid of your Worm Coil Engine, you got the two, three, threes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like a a three for one, I guess, technically, if you want to talk about it. Another card that I enjoy outside uh, in my sideboard is um, Maze of Ith and Tabernacle. Okay. I find that those um, fish decks and rug delver decks have a nightmare time dealing with Tanglewire and Tabernacle. Like okay. it will just tap them out completely. Mm-hmm. And then if you if you have a sphere out there, because you're so creature light anyways, if you're playing like a prison strategy, that you can probably cast all of your spells like unmolested. Well, let's talk about the new deck about to hit the scenes. Burning Long. What would you? Uh, what do you want there? Is your main deck good enough? Do you have enough spheres and everything? See, the Burning Long list is like really weird because <laughs> you have your spheres and your chalice and everything to attack the uh, combo route. But um, Stephen Menendian's list is actually running Oath of Druids now. That has always been a nightmare card for Workshop. Why is Oath particularly a nightmare? Oath's a nightmare is because it's a two-casting cost enchantment, and if they have the Forbidden Orchard, they blast out Grizzlebrand. That like that is just like a card advantage that you can't compete with like at all. Like they're gonna well, find their answers. Plus, it's a seven-seven flying lifelinker. Yeah, resolving a two-color enchant or a two-casting cost enchantment against workshops probably one of the easiest things to do. And so, like, Vintage is, like, a world of small tournaments. We have, like, 20-man tournaments. We don't have these 1,000-man tournaments, like PTQs and 100-man tournaments of everything. Your Burning Long player is, like, going to scout, and, like, when they know someone's going to be playing workshops, all they have to do is focus on putting out Oath of Druids. Yeah, being able to resolve Oath early. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really easy against the workshop. I mean, it's not easy. So how do you stop that? I mean, obviously your spears and stuff help against the storm route, but what, what do you use to stop a Game one or out of the sideboard? Either. Game one, if you don't know what's coming and you play like your just normal like play style, like hopefully like your spheres and like your attack on their mana base can stop them from casting out. If they're on a play and they turn one oath you, kind of out of it. All you have to do is like stack them out. And then post do you try and stop Oath from triggering? Do you try and prevent Oath from resolving? Do you try and blow up Oath before it triggers? There's multiple things you could do. Like, you could use Witchbane Orb. You can use Ratchet Bombs if they're fast enough. At the TSO, I'm going to run this, um... I expect at least, like, three or four burning long lists there, just because it's the new flavor of the month. I'm going to be running Leyland of Sanctity in my board, because that negates both of those strategies outside of MP the Wardens. Sure. That stops Oath because Oath targets. Correct. You don't know that Oath Enchantment triggered ability targets an opponent. So anything that stops targeting stops Oath. So I think Layla and Sanctity, well, like, I'm going to be running Sam Potters in my main, too, so. Okay, so you'll have an easy time finding that, then. Hopefully. In, in <laughs> theory, it should work out. Right, right. Like, on paper, it looks really well. We'll see what happens when the time comes. Okay. And let's talk about the mirror. What do you want to see in your mirror? What's the what are the, the good cards for workshop versus workshop? The most important cards I find is a uh, Crucible of Worlds. Okay. That card is a complete banger in the mirror. You you know your opponent has no basic lands, and if you have a wasteland or a strip mine and crucible, it will put them behind the eight ball so fast, more than any other card. 
Second to that is Precursor Gollum. Oh, interesting. I love Precursor Gollum in the mirror. Obviously, that's because it puts extra permanence into play as well, then, right? Yeah. And all and those of, exit, all those of them block Lodestone Gollum just fine. Yes, and all of them block uh, Phyrexian Revoker, and all okay. of them block like just pretty much everything else they can throw at you. Okay. The other card that I would like most in the mirror, if I was playing red, it would be Goblin Welder, obviously. I think Karn. Karn is the best one, because it negates all their Moxin. Okay. And it also turns your guys, not your guys, but uh, yeah. block pieces and other things into guys. Your main deck would already be pretty good against the big blue decks. What do you, is there anything that you want to bring in? or uh, Their game plan is obviously going to be to resolve Tinker. Is that, that what you try and stop? I mean, you always want to stop Tinker. Sure. That's that's a really, really good threat that a blue deck could pop down. But, like, um, I'm more afraid of Hercules Recall or, like, one spot removal or um, Ancient Grudge than Tinker. Does that mean you would play Witchbane Orb and Leyline of Sanctity against them for the, uh, to stop Hercules? I guess that depends what I see game one. Sure. Like, if I'm if I'm, I'm playing against a Rug Galver list, like, I'm not going to board Leyline of Sanctity. That's because, like, I already know, like, from, like, just past tournament experiences that they deal with spot removal and like countering your artifacts or like destroying them when they're on board. Now, if I was playing like against a big blue deck, like a Grixis control deck or like maybe like East Coast Wind, like a Gush deck, then I would bring like a Witch Brain Orb or a Lingotum Sanctity because those combo decks like tend to Hercules recall you, go nuts, and then with what about Dismember? Didn't you talk about Dismember in your sideboard? What do you bring that in against? Seems like a kind of a rare workshop removal spell. It gets rid of every single thing you want to get rid of in the mirror. No, I'm saying like workshop doesn't have a lot of removal spells like that. Instant speed and spot removal. Yeah, that's oh, oh, oh. No, Dismember's great. It's unbelievable against like Tarmogoyfs, Delvers, Trigon Predators, like just stupid creatures that gain your opponent incremental advantage. Like I've Dismembered like Dark confidants before, like I've taken the four the four damage, but in the long run, like that one for one, when they're banking on dark confidant being a permanent and getting them card advantage. Well, dark confidant's gonna draw them lands, which will eventually negate your spears. Right. Correct. That's why I have no problem like bringing dismember and like just smacking those right off the rip. And yes, another thing about dismember like one is of your best targets. Oh yeah, it's a great target, but um, dismember is so good because it's colorless. The same with Mental Misstuff. Like, sometimes when you bring in Mental Misstuff from the board, like, a blue opponent will just not see that coming because it's free. Well, in terms of the mana that you pay for it, it's colorless, but in terms of Lodestone Golem, it's not. It still gets plus, but you still have to pay more on your Lodestone Golem. Oh, yeah, you do. I've never had a problem casting this member with Lodestone Golem in play. Okay. I mean, just because, like, Ancient Tomb, like, yeah, you could take six, but if uh, you negate, like, your opponent's, like, creature, like, I would take six willingly to, like, get rid of a Dark Confidant. And let's not forget, you do play a Mox Jet. I also play Black Lotus. And a Black Lotus, yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll move on to talk about the upcoming Team Serious Open. That's going to be uh, Sunday, October 20th in Columbus, Ohio. You know, what are you, uh, I think Tuan and I are the only ones playing in that tournament. Tuan, do you have any predictions of, of what you're going to see there and any thoughts on what you're going to play to try and com- combat that? I do, I do have a little uh, metagame prediction. Well, in Columbus and combating with SCG Indianapolis, 
I'm probably going to expect about like 20 to 23 people. Because I know we have 15 people confirmed already. As decks are concerned, I expect plenty of workshop decks to be there. There always is. Ohio loves workshops. There'll probably be five plus workshop decks. One times Wild Bill Control. I think there's going to be two times Burning Wish decks. Like those Burning Long decks. Only because like, there probably should be more. But in Ohio, there's no more Long Pilots. Like when Steve left and a few other guys left. Like right. that combo, like there's no one working on combo. Yeah, we, we know Steve Menendia would definitely be playing Burning Long if he was going to be there. But yeah, I, I would totally put him on Burning Long due to his right. hype and Sith presence. Right. Another thing is, um, I think there might be two to three Brug Dalver lists, just because yeah. that's so easy for like a legacy player to come over. And like yeah. Solly did amazingly well at Vintage Prelims with Brug Dalver, so mm-hmm. a legacy pilot can see like, oh, like I can proxy a few cards play Rug Delver, and you have a good chance of doing well. There's always two Dredge decks there. I put one times Elves decks there. There's always someone playing Elves. I don't know if um kid playing Elves is going to be at uh, SCG Indianapolis yeah, or not. But as far as I know, the kid who always plays Elves is Riley Curran. Pretty sure that he's going to Indianapolis. Well, hopefully he plays Elves in like top eights because the dude's like an assassin. That, that guy me. regularly makes top eight with Elves at Ohio events. So Yeah. Other than that, be... of top eight. When was the last time you made top eight, Tom? Are you really serious? Sorry, I didn't mean to swear. <laughs> Are you really bringing some? It's actually been. Oh, you know it to the day, time. don't you? You know it to the day. I do. It was la- It was the Sunday of last year after Gen Con. I made. Uh, I got second on that Sunday event, and I have not top eight in a vintage event since then. So we're looking uh, at fourteen months. Yes, 14 months of disaster. That's why I'm coming to the TSO guns a-blazing. Do you feel like, really, this is your tournament to lose? No, I feel like this is my tournament to win. Wow. So, uh, I mean, you're going to win this thing. What are you going to win it with? What kind of list do you play? I'm going to be playing workshops. Anything more specific? Or are you just, uh, throwing <laughs> no, no. I'm going back to my roots. It's it's actually really weird because um, Lodestone Gollum got printed, and I picked workshops probably for like two or three months after they got printed, I haven't really picked up workshops since. Like, I've always tested them, and I've always, like, played them, but I've never put them to battle in a tournament. And this time you are. Yeah, this time I am. And you're going with the um, serum powder and eight times ley lines plan? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be playing four serum powders in my main deck, and in my sideboard, I'm going to be running four ley line of sanctities, four ley line of the void, three graft diggers cages, and the rest is going to be maze of its and tabernacles, and a few dismembers. So it sounds like you'll be uh, prepared for creatures and oath and combo and dredge. Yeah. All right. Sideboard sounds pretty good. I like it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually pretty excited about that sideboard. I like it a lot. I like the uh, the serum powder into various ley lines trick. Yeah, we're gonna see how it works. I'm pulling this I'm pulling this one out from uh, those East Coast guys, that Wild and the Farino brothers. We'll see how serum powder does it. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm playing in the event too. I think Twan's assessment of the meta game is about what I would say is coming out. Um, Sam Crollo, who has won the last two Team Serious Opens. I know that he is not going to be at this tournament. Oh, so that means we got a chance to win, right? Yeah, he won't be able to complete his trifecta. I'm not going to go to the 
serious open, but I have a pretty good excuse because I actually live in Denver, and I don't know who's going to listen to this, but if anyone is in this area and plays vintage, there's weekly sanctioned vintage tournaments at Black Gold. It's usually pretty fun, but 8 to 12 people usually show up, and playing sanctioned vintage is pretty sweet, so there's there's my plug because I'm not going to be at the Team Series Open. Do you get to go to Thurman's afterwards? I don't. That is yeah, where do you guys go afterwards? Um, there's some, some restaurants in front of the mall. Nothing really exciting. Never mind, though. <laughs> but you get to play Sanctioned Vintage, though, which I think is, like, the greatest format ever. Uh, yes, Sanctioned Vintage is awesome. A lot of people show up from the kitchen table, which is pretty interesting. You know, the uh, four Lotus Petal Mono Black decks are pretty good. <laughs> How can you run four Lotus Petals? You can't. <laughs> It's okay. Cheating is okay in sanctioned vintage. It's it's yeah. allowed. You don't have a lotus, of uh, lotus petals. It's but, really interesting because you, you I mean you you play against all sorts of random decks that you would never play against otherwise, and random cards. Can I ask you like a serious a serious question? When you play against those random decks, when you're playing sanctioned vintage, do you lose to those random decks sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, that's interesting because they like. I'm just an avid fan of Sanctioned Vintage. Like, I think that is, like, one of the greatest things that you can have. Yeah, no, it is really fun. One thing about Sanctioned Vintage that's really good is Oath. Because in Sanctioned Vintage, lots of people play creatures. (laughs) And their creatures are not as good as your Oath targets. I think in general, um, you can lose to random decks because... Decks in vintage exist to to counter other vintage decks, and when you get something totally out of left field, sure you have a lot of power, but you just don't have the uh, the appropriate tools to face off against whatever random crap they're bringing out against you. Right. I mean, you you want to counter a Tinker or a Time Vault, not a Carapace Forger. Exactly. I don't even know what that is. I don't know if I want to counter it or not. I'm not even gonna look that one up. Yeah. <laughs> But I agree with uh, what Jeff said. Is like it forces you to interact in the weird function, right? Like, yeah, you're not you're not playing against stock lists, so you're not like okay, well, my opponent's list probably has X, Y, and Z, and they're playing like they have X and Y in their hand. You have no idea what's in their hand. <laughs> but like that's that's one of the reasons why I think the European metagame is so weird is because they play so much sanctioned vintage. And, like, when you look at their list, like, they're populated with, like, repeals and, like, weird things that, like, when you're over here in America, there's no reason for me to run, like, three repeals because there's no aggro decks. Like, everyone's going to proxy, like, a workshop deck or a big blue deck. Like, what are you going to repeal? Like, proxy Moxin or something? You're not going to repeal, like, a, some weird aggro creature. I guess that's true. I don't no, know. I mean, it really is. And, like, um, I think there's very few people that have played in America in a non-proxied area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only one I've been to before I moved to Colorado was Gen Con. Yeah, I remember when we used to play at the uh, the dungeon. That was where I first started playing vintage. And my first deck was a concoction that had four goblin welders, four wild mongrels, and memory jar, so that I could put my wild mongrels to really big numbers by sacrificing memory jar and welding it back in. Yeah, I mean, I played treachery. Yeah, treachery. Non-proxied vintage forces people to, like, innovate and combat, like, things. Like, if you had, like, a non-proxied vintage tournament weekly, and, like, you had, like, 15 people that would, like, constantly, like, come, and, like, say, like, four people were fully powered and no one else was. 
There, there are people there that are fully powered, and there are people there that are just getting into magic and decide that they want to play with all of the magic cards. Yeah. Yes, and that is a great thing because the people that come in, they figure out how to beat someone who's fully powered. And right. like, it's very easy to do. Well, I guess it's not like very easy to do, but like, it is possible. It's, it's, a, it's a really good group of guys that are, you know, I mean, they're nice. I mean, they'll maybe give you advice after the games. Um, two years ago at Gen Con, one of the people called me and said, hey, I know you're going to Gen Con, I'm not going. Do you want to borrow all of my power? Just pretty sweet vintage players. I mean, the Vintage community is, like, way nicer than, like, any other, like, magic community out there. Outside of maybe EDH. Again, you know, you're, this is going to be your last time on the podcast. <laughs> no, because yep. no, those guys are all casual gamers. They are not all casual gamers. They're wasters no, there's, of time. There's no consistency over EDH gamers. That's part of why it's a really silly format. EDH is a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> you take a tournament-caliber player... Put them in the EDH format, and they're going to smoke every single casual mage out there. We're, we're losing so many listeners. Sorry, guys. I think one oh. thing that we have to realize is that EDH is still more popular than Vintage. And, like, don't Good get luck. me wrong. EDH is a great format. Like, I love playing Singleton. It is awesome. You actually play, like, casual magic. The problem is, is, like, when you take a Vintage mage and you put them into casual magic, they do not... Transfer to casual magic. They transfer over there as tournament caliber vintage mage. Yeah, no, no I, I, I agree. I, I mean, this, this is this is the same thing because like it's sort of like when we harken back to our kitchen table days and we talk about how much fun it was to just like build massive armies and just sit there and behind them, and that was like fun at the time. But you can't go back to that because once you've played competitive magic, especially vintage, you can no longer not play to win. Just sitting oh. down to design a deck, when your first decision is, how does this win? How do, how do I create the synergies in order to make this win? You can't play casual anymore. You can't go back there. Well, I think oh, the thing is, after playing vintage, I think the thing is, you, you're constantly looking for, what's the most broken thing I can do? Yeah. How fast can I kill my opponent? How can yeah. I make my opponent not enjoy this game. And how can you have fun when you, when you specifically design to not do that? Right. No, I mean, that's... What a silly. tangent. What a terrible tangent. Yeah, yeah. yeah that is, I mean, that is a line when you cross over from, like, casual kitchen table mage to tournament caliber mage. You can't go back... Okay, so we're done playing Magic at Comic Town in Columbus. What are we going to do? I say we go to Thurman's. I don't think there's even a choice on whether we're going to Thurman's or not. Look, you know, people had gotten off of the Thurman's kick. What? And Yeah, yeah, there were like several tournaments in a row where we were trying different restaurants, for better or worse. Was that only because the wait was so long? The wait is usually pretty long. For those of you who don't know, Thurman's is a nationally recognized hamburger restaurant. They have been on the Food Network multiple times for multiple reasons, and they serve insanely large pieces of meat that are delicious. covered with toppings. Wait, 
and just dripping with juice. So also, I mean, yeah. you should try the pretzel bites. Yeah, the pretzel bites are also. They have so many things on the menu are just insanely good. They have really good hot wings. They have really good pizza. They can do no wrong, literally. I think there have been a few people who've spoken up recently and said that all we hear about when we come to or when we talk about Columbus tournaments is going to Thurman's, and we've never been. So I'm pretty sure that we're going to be taking a large group to Thurman's on Sunday afternoon. I think we'll be taking at least 12 plus. I agree. I think that the turnout at Thurman's could be larger than the turnout at the tournament. <laughs> Thurman's is probably way more rewarding than playing vintage. <laughs> because you at least get a tasty burger. <laughs> I know. I don't think there's a way you can, like, go ornithopter at Thurman's. That's true. You get your sandwich punch twice. It doesn't matter. If you got your sandwich punch twice, you're still right. not going to go ornithopter because they, you scrape the residue, and it's still going to be good. All right, let's 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 talk a little bit about Sandwich Punch. We're really bringing this one up. Yes. I, the the people have demanded this. They're We've excited. gotten so many requests to talk about Sandwich Punch. And, uh, Tuan, I think you were there at the beginning, and so was Chapel. So now that we've got people here who know, what's the deal? It's kind of like a gentleman's game, like okay. cricket. It's funny because I always start out when someone's like, what's Sandwich Punch? I say, well, it's a gentleman's game. And they're like, it's a gentleman's game about punching people's sandwiches. And I'm like, yes. It is, and they don't get it. There are strict rules about Sandwich Punch, though. Oh, super strict rules. What, what are those rules, Nat? Oh, man, I did not have the rules brought up. I actually have them printed out right now. They're, they're not complicated, but it's all like, um. the most complicated part is the interpretation from the players of the game. Yeah, there's, like, there's um, a lot of debate about the rules when they come yeah. up. I mean, Like rule number one, once a person knows the main rules to Sandwich Punch, they are a player for life. By the way, Never punch a person's sandwich unless they are playing. Rule number one. Which we generally don't enforce because we are gentlemen. Rule number two. The game begins when one first modified his or her sandwich. So what does modify mean? Modify? Yeah. Any type of manipulation of the sandwich. When your waitress brings your sandwich to the table, unmodified. But if you put ketchup on it, modified. Absolutely. Once said sandwich has been bitten ripped or cut into, the sandwich is open for punching. Now how would I prevent my sandwich from being punched? Well, once the sandwich is set down, it must be covered with an object. Any object is welcome as long as it is an adamant object. Example, you can put a ketchup packet on your sandwich, but you can't just put the ketchup on top of the sandwich. You mean like the actual condiment ketchup? Yeah, you You actually have to put the packet to like okay. guard your It cannot sandwich. become a part of the sandwich. Right. Yeah. It, it's weird though, like sesame seeds don't count, but um other examples of objects you can use are like fries, forks, like knives, salt, pepper packets, uh like napkins, like any freaking object of any sort. I think that's a good enough yeah. explanation. I think we should go in some stories that are examples in order to show how sandwich punch works in action. Jeff, do you have any examples? I think that my example would be, I think it was probably my first sandwich that was punched. Maybe it was my second, but it was certainly the most notable. It was after the only RIW tournament that I went to, and I think it was actually the last RIW tournament. It was probably like two years ago now. Is yeah. that why it was your last RIW tournament? <laughs> no, it was last RIW tournament punched? because they were canceled afterward. But, you know, I bet it was longer ago than that because I was there too. Yeah. I bet it was. 
So anyway, first of all, this is also before I realized that I should start bringing headache medications to tournaments, because I always got terrible migraines. So, like, I felt awful. And we went out back afterwards, and I'm sitting right next to Chapel. As I said, I feel terrible, so I'm totally, like, not on top of my game. I got a hamburger, and I didn't notice it, but everybody was, like, super psyched and looking around really excited because I had gotten a hamburger, and I think I was the only one who got a sandwich that night. And so, uh, I'm just there eating. I put it down, and I look away, and Chapel just looks over and just in one motion just, like, hammers down on it. And I... I was really just, like, feeling so sour at that point. I just gave him this stare of death, and I really thought about just punching him in the face. But that would have been ungentlemanly, so I didn't. You took it in stride. I, I'm not sure it was totally in stride, but I definitely took it. You have no idea how long it's been since, like, I think... I literally had to, like, almost stop talking right But, um, Jerry Yang and myself... We still talk about how awesome that, like, sandwich punch was, because that was your first introduction to it. And, like, I remember you just wanted to order a hamburger without a bun, and Chapel talked you in to getting a bun. And you were like, okay. And then, like, when it came, just that thud of the fist hitting, like, that porcelain. I was I devastated. I really that. was. I so almost it, thought you were gonna like exit our friendship. Like that was gonna be the end of it. Like I know. I'm out. Didn't you get punched out of magic at that point? Like you stopped playing magic after that for the next four years. Yeah, that's true actually. I, I think that be was my fair. last tournament for a long time. Because I decided not to play Dredge anymore, and then I played the Mountains Win again for that one tournament, and then I was just like out of magic. Yep. I, I blame that all on that sandwich punch. It could be. I was broken. I, I was a broken I, man. I, I think you were. You you certainly looked it. There's nothing more hilarious to me than a man saying he's crippled and playing the mountains with a game. <laughs> Burn. Yeah. Ouch. Wow. I mean, the key, the key to the sandwich punch is to always guard your sandwich. I guard my sandwich when I eat at my desk at work. Oh, absolutely. I guard my sandwich when I, like go out with people all the time, like even people that aren't in. I don't bother guarding my sandwich. I just never put my sandwiches down anymore. That's my tactic as well. Yeah, I just never no, put it's a great strategy. It's, it's very rare for me to actually put a sandwich down. And once you get into the habit, it's not even like you have to remember it. It's just like you just one hand on the sandwich all the time. No, I agree. I agree. And there has been people that I've punished beyond all belief that have not followed that mentality. So tell us about some. Rather than rambling on forever, I'll, I'll give you guys two like awesome sandwich punch examples that I've lived through. One day, uh, we were all testing at Caribou. Oliver and G, myself, after testing like a awesome like super like gauntlet of vintage, like what do you do? Like we're like, well, let's go to strip club. So we went to Lido's. So Oliver got us in, and everything was great, and um. We're sitting at the bar, just drinking, and um, they, for some god-awful reason, he ordered a sandwich. We were surrounded by strippers, and like, <laughs> that sandwich got delivered to us. He took a, like, a magnificent bite of it. Like, I don't know what stripper food tastes like or whatnot, but like, I just imagine it being awful. But he loved every minute of it. So, took a bite, put it down, and then he went to talk to this girl who wanted to like, give him a lap dance. 
And like as soon as that happened, I just reached over and just rocked his sandwich into the next millennium. And then after that, did he get a lap dance? Oh, actually, G, Oliver, and myself—we all got lap dances after that because they were so impressed, like that we were such savages. Did G pay for them all? No, we got them all for free after that one. Wow, that's impressive. I know, but apparently, like if you play sandwich punch in your strip club, they love it. <laughs> so what's your yeah. second story? Oh, the second story is um, I used to date this girl. We really connected and everything, and like our families were like super tight. It was a Thanksgiving. She just got introduced to Sandwich Punch, and she was like, "Haha, that's funny, like hilarious game." So we were just hanging out like in her parents' kitchen or whatnot, and it was probably like one a.m. Probably a little bit later if we got home from the or not. She was, like, super hungry, and she's like, I'm going to make this, like, a wicked hot pocket. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it sounds great. I got him and cheese, like, whatever you want. Like, do it up. She popped that bitch in the microwave, <laughs> and all her parents were out. Like, we were just, like, BSing and talking because it was the holidays. Then, like, little buzzer banged, and then um, she's like, oh, this is great. She pulled it out, put it on a little, like, paper plate, and then she took that one bite, and she knew she was in Sailor's Punch. She did. She took that one bite, like she laid that on the counter, and I had that moment in time where like I was surrounded by her parents. There might have been a grandparent there. What? You know, I had to take this opportunity, so I don't care. So she set her little hot pocket of like how him and cheese down on the table, and like I just punched the out of that thing, blue cheese and him all over. Now, why is this? Why is a hot pocket punchable? Yeah, a are hot pocket is not a sandwich. Are you rules? Are you rules luring me right now? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm asking you. Like a hot pocket does not seem like it should be punched. It's a sandwich. What makes it punchable? It is a hot pocket sandwich. It's a sandwich on the container. Exactly. Uh, labeled a sandwich by sandwich experts. Which makes it a sandwich, regardless of what it might be. Right. Like ice cream sandwiches. Punchable. Or Oreo sandwich cookies. Android phones that run ice cream sandwich as their operating system. Anyway, Juan, <laughs> were her parents in on Sandwich Punch as well? No. Are they now? Yes. <laughs> nice! And I think that's the thing. Sandwich Punch really does bring people together. <laughs> no, it's a great game. It is. I used to live with a kid when I lived in Breckenridge that I introduced a Sandwich Punch. He does not play magic, but he was very bad at it. Still is, to the point where it's not even fun to punch a sandwich. However, <laughs> has threatened to fight me if I punch a sandwich again because one occasion he made two sandwiches, took one bite out of one sandwich, set it on top of the other one, and then walked away. <laughs> and on another instance, he was laying on the couch eating a sandwich, and he had one bite left, and he was watching TV, and for whatever reason, he said it in his crotch area. <laughs> So he's really bad at sandwich punch. <laughs> so you're saying that there are sometimes where sandwich punch results in collateral damage. Yes, I, I mean, think I agree with that one. I, I mean, if you go to, if you go to a bar and you order a burger and fries, what do you get? It in? you get it in a basket. So if someone takes a bite of their burger and they're in and sets their burger on the edge of the basket, you end up launching fries like four or five seats down the bar. <laughs> All in good fun. So let me All ask, what, what do other people say when they see you playing Sandwich Punch? Obviously, things went very well in the strip club, 
But, I mean, okay, if you launch someone's fries five feet down the bar, well, what do other people say? It really depends on the amount of ketchup that goes with the fries. I see. But, I mean, for the most part, people are, they think it's funny, and they're intrigued why we're punching each other's sandwich. I can agree with that one. It's like, when you punch someone's sandwich and, like, it hits the fan, like, that brings people in. They want to know what's going on. Especially at a restaurant, because it makes a really loud noise of ice cubes clinking in glasses and silverware banging against plates. Oh, absolutely. This is part of the spectacle. And the finer the restaurant, the classier the clinking. True. It's true. Well, I hope we get to see some good sandwich punches at Thurman's this weekend. No, that see, that's the problem with sandwich punch. It's like, when people are in the know, they know. And, like, someone always brings it up. Yeah, you can't bring it up. I don't know. I mean, like, there are a lot of people who are totally in, like... Everyone has a story about punching Steve Menendi in sandwich. Well, because he's always in, and, like, he always complains, but, like, he never guards. Steve Menendi is really bad at sandwich punch. Yeah, exactly. He's good at vintage, but bad at sandwich punch. I remember one time we were all, uh, where were we? I think it must have been a hotel room for a Star City Columbus Power Night event, or a Star City uh, Chicago Power Night event, rather. We had just gotten in, it was late, and Steve ordered, like, a big Italian sandwich, from a pizza place, <laughs> along along with other people getting pizzas and stuff. And so he's, like, eating this giant sub on the floor. Other people are sitting around eating pizza. And he sets it down and starts talking about vintage. And people start looking at me, like, is he in? And I have to say yes. And, and he realizes what's going on just a bit too late. As, as his sandwich just gets demolished, and he's forced to eat it because... He only has the one sandwich to go with, and he's, he's hungry. So even the great ones fall to sandwich punch. One of the, the essential parts of sandwich punch is the shame of having to eat the punch sandwich because you're just that hungry or it tastes that good. You're just yep. sort of like picking up the, the fisted remains of your food, <laughs> eating it any way you possibly can at that point. Yeah, yeah with, with a fork and a knife, and you call it a casserole. <laughs> that about wraps up our show for this time. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Josh Chappell. And I'm Nat Mose. And we were here with Quan P. Bonertown, Vintage Jedi and Workshop Master. Hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see.